So, what a wonderful turnout. Thank you so much. Uh, usually I get the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and there's not very many people here. And then it gets, builds up, my husband comes, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, boom! <laughs> so I think I've, I've, I've tricked you and captured you by my bigger stories. <laughs> okay, so let's read the verse together. Oh, didn't, yeah, we did Jagaranamara. <laughs> okay. Etavaj janmasaf Safalyam Safalyam Dehinam Iha Dehishu Praner Ater Diavacha Shreya Acharanam Sada Etadvaj janma safalyam Dehinam iha dehishu Praner ater diavacha Shreya acharanam sada Gentlemen Etavajan Masafalyam Dehinam Iha Dehishu Pranerater Diavacha Shreya Acharanam Sada Etavajan Masafalyam Dehinam iha dehishu Pranerater diavacha Shreya acharanam sada Itavajjan masafalyam Dehinam iha dehishu Pranerater diavacha Shreya acharanam sada Etavaj Up to this Janma of birth Safalyan Perfection Dehinam Of every living being Iha in this world, Dehishu, of those towards those who are embodied. Pranai, by life. Artai, by wealth. Dia, by intelligence. Vacha, by words. Shreya, eternal good fortune. Acharanam, acting practically. Sada, always. Translation. It is the duty of every living being to perform welfare activities for the benefit of others with his life, 
his wealth, his intelligence and his words. And a short, minute purport says, this translation is quoted from Srila Prabhupada's Chaitanya Charitamrita Adi Lila 9.42. So there's no information given in this, this uh, minute purport. So let me tell you a beggar story and then we'll come back to the relevance of this particular verse. Hare Krishna. <laughs> so one time, perhaps in 1992, I was visiting Mumbai with a friend. And we had been there for a big festival. And we were going back to Vrindavan. So uh, somebody gave us a lift to Bombay Central. And we were carrying with us our luggage and so many things. And we were feeling, as I, I think you feel also, a very buoyant because of the festival that had just taken place and also very sanctified because you come to the morning program, you chant japa, uh, you, you do so many worshipping Srila Prabhupada and so on and then you feel like clean and, and sometimes when you feel clean it's like, I, any of you know this, if you just taken a bath and somebody said, could you put your hand down this drain pipe? Because I lost my ring down there. Could you get it out for me? You're like, um, <laughs> really? Do I have to do that? Because I'm all clean right now. And that's a dirty place, so I, I don't want to really touch that. So we were feeling, my friend and I, we were feeling very buoyant and happy and they drove us to the Bombay Central and we were crossing over the overpass over all the train lines to our platform. And as we were walking along, just, you know how sometimes out of the corner of your eye you see something, you see a color or something and you, you're not looking at it but you sort of see it and it takes your attention for a minute and then you keep going. So out of the corner of my eye, I saw on the filthy platform, all due respects to everyone who comes from Mumbai, but <laughs> at least in 1992, it was filthy. Um, people spit pan on the station and, and there's feces sometimes on the station. What to speak of the people who have gone into the, the bathrooms on the train carriages, which are filthy, and they've walked out in their shoes. So we were hypersensitive to how disgustingly filthy everything around us was in our sanctified uh, state. And so out of the corner of my eye, I saw this beggar. Now, he had no legs, or I didn't look at him very closely, but he had no functioning legs. And so he was sitting on a piece of wood about this size by this size, he was also filthy, dirty, black hair, everything dirty about him. But to move around, to live his life, he had to put his hands on the platform and pull himself along. And what, what struck me about him was, what a hellish thing do you have to do? He has to put his hands on that filthy platform just to move in his life. And he looked a bit delirious and I, I just felt a conscious moment of repulsion to his circumstances. It actually crossed my mind. How could you live like that? 
But we were really busy. We had all our luggage and we came down onto the platform and then we were trying to figure out where the train was going to come in, which number on the station. And we got ourselves to the right place to get on the train and we sat down. The train was a little late, believe it or not. <laughs> and so we put all our luggage down and we were sitting there waiting to get on the train and chatting together and it was just a, a wonderful moment. And then all of a sudden I felt this kind of a a hand on my foot. And I looked around in surprise and then I went, ah! <laughs> because it was him. And we were way down the station and he was way up that way. And he was so disgusting. And somehow he had paddled himself all the way down the station to where we were. And my first reaction was literally like that. I just jumped back in horror that it was him and he's touching my feet, that means he's transferring all of his karma onto my, me. And he's filthy, and not only what to speak of his mind. So I didn't know what to do, and I just sat there. And we're, we're trained, Srila Prabhupada didn't like us to allow people to touch our feet. He was very, very firm about that. Don't, touch the, don't let them touch your feet. And there he was. And so he would say, if somebody touches your feet, you tap them on the head, you bless them back, and there's a cycle goes on, so that you don't end up with all of their ill luck, and they take all of your good luck. Now he's not talking about somebody who's a great devotee, because they're like, you could say they're like plugged in to so much good fortune, that it's always flowing. So if you touch their feet, then they'll just bless you on. But he knew that we were not that mature, and so he told us to be careful of this etiquette. And here's this man touching my feet. I didn't know what to do. I looked at my friend and she was looking as frightened as I was. And I, I said to her, do you have anything to eat? You know, I didn't know what to do. I wasn't going to give him any money because I thought, what's he going to do with money? He just goes like this up and down the platform all day. Doesn't, he can't even get off the station. He lives on the platform. And so I said, do you have anything? And she said, yes. And she grabbed a bag and she found it. She had some japati. So she gave, handed me a japati and we were both really scared. And I handed him the japati like I was touching, outreaching to a lion. I go, here's the japati. And I'm like, <gasps> and he took the japati and then he had this deliriously happy look on his face like a madman looks like, ah. And he took the japati and he put it on his head and he was like, Oh. I was like, oh, this is a little strange. And he just had the japati on his head and he was nodding his head backwards and forwards and closed his eyes and he went into a kind of ecstatic trance. And <laughs> I'm looking at her, and I, but he's not moving anywhere, he's not leaving. And so I said to her, do we have anything else? And they had done an Abhishek for Srila Prabhupada at, during the festival. And so I just, it just occurred to me, I've got some water, I've got some of that water. And so I fumbled through my bag and I found this small bottle of water that I had been given. And um, I, I, I took the japati off his head and put it on his platform. And then I just sprinkled the water on his head, poured it on his head. I didn't know what else I could do for the man. And he clearly was not all there. And so I poured it on his head and it was sort of running down his face. And he just closed his eyes and he just let the water there. And he suddenly looked very, very calm. 
And then he opened his eyes and he nodded his head like a thank you. And then he turned around and he just pedaled away, right down the station. Didn't ask for any money, didn't beg, beg, beg. He came and he got something specific. And we both looked at each other and it was a very, very profound moment for us. That, And she said to me, she said, maybe in his last life he committed some very severe Vaishnava Aparat. And look how he's suffering like this. And yet internally he's kind of happy. He's not like a miserable, mean, horrible, ugly, crunky person. He's actually quite happy, but he's got this hellish, filthy situation. And maybe he was meant to follow us all the way down the platform, although we didn't see him, because we had the medicine. And maybe, somehow or other, he knew it. And now, how would he know that? He wouldn't know it because anyone told him. But maybe from within, because Krishna is active within us, and then he inspires us to act on the outside. And sometimes we think, and sometimes of course we have our own ideas, and we say, I want to do this, I don't want to do that, I like this, I don't like that. That's there too, our mind is there. But alongside of the mind, there's Krishna sitting there. So he's the one who arranges these comings and goings or meetings between Vaishnavas and non-Vaishnavas. Now this is super, super profound. And this, this particular beggar, uh, it, it left with me this indelible sense. Because the others I didn't interact with, I just watched them and felt a bit of pity for them or, or, or understood that they were maybe they're not bad, maybe they're somebody in disguise. But this one I had this interaction with, eye to eye, in exchange. And he didn't want money. He didn't ask for money. He, he, he relished his chapati on his head. <laughs> and, and off he went with, with Srila Prabhupada's Chanamrita on his head as well. So when I was preparing this, I was thinking to myself that uh, I wanted to share this because it's really, really, really important to make a particular point. So I'm going to read you a couple of things. We are now, by the way, in our verse that we just read, we all know, I think, that we're no longer in the uh, pre-tenth canto where we're being given instructions that are meant to bring us towards Krishna in Vrindavan. We're now already in Vrindavan. So I want to read you and tell you why I chose this verse. Just have to find my part here. If not, I'll have to just ad-lib it. Okay. Okay, here we go. So first of all, let me read you the verses and tell you why I chose this verse. This is just after Krishna has gone in the early morning to the bank of the Jamuna, where these innocent young gopi girls have been going for one month 
kind of secretly, but they all were part of the same group. And they didn't tell their mothers what they were doing. They didn't tell their fathers what they were doing. It was the Hemant season. It was really cold. And these young girls would wear a very simple dress, just a, a pinkish kind of cloth. And hand in hand together as a party, they would go to the bank of the Jamuna before sunset. Can you, sunrise. Can you imagine how cold it was? And then when they get to the bank of the Jamuna, they would dip into the water to purify themselves. They would come out, they would take the dust and sand of Vrindavan and they would create a sort of a sand figure of a deity. And then they would get out all the things they had got from home. They had brought fruit and flowers and sometimes maybe a jewel or something. And they had all these different things and incense and they would put them all around together as a group. They would all sit around. And even if they were three rows back, because this is Vrindavan, even three rows back, it was as if they were right there. So it wasn't like these ones here got to do it and they had to watch. It was everyone was doing this for themselves. And they would take their paraphernalia and they would make a worship. And they were worshipping Goddess Katyayani. And they had one interest. That's why they were a party. They had exactly the same intention, all of them. They all wanted to marry Krishna. That was all they were interested in. And they were now coming up 11, 12, marriageable age in that time. And so they were thinking, we've got to do this because we only want Krishna. They would make their puja and then they would pray to Goddess Kachayani. They'd been given a mantra by Vrindadevi. They would chant the mantra earnestly, innocently, sincerely. And then they would all put everything away and laughing and joking like young girls, they'd all return back to their homes. And they did this every day for a month. At the end of that month, as we know, Krishna came and he was also a young boy. So there's not, it's not a sensual exchange as it would be if you had mature men and women. But Krishna came and he teased them and ultimately he stole all their beautiful colored cloth because it was the last day they were all wearing special dresses to please Krishna. He stole them, put them up in the Kadamba tree and these very, very shy, chaste young girls, they could not come out of the water like that. So they stayed in the water until they were so cold and shivering and Krishna humorously climbed up that tree and joked with them. And they tried many different ways to get him to just drop those clothes down. <laughs> Please, we're co so cold, we want to come out. We, 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 we think that you're like our husband, but just put them down on the ground and then we can come out. Otherwise, we can't. And he teased them so badly. He told them, if you keep uh, disagreeing with me, I'll tie them all together and make a hammock and I'll just stay up here forever in the clouds. And they said, we'll tell Kamsa on you. And he said, ah, I'm not afraid. We'll tell your father on you. He's not going to do anything. And he just stayed up there in this very playfully arrogant way. 
and eventually the girls who were actually they loved him so they loved his play but you see for them their their chastity their purity was as so high it was equal to their love so there was no way they could come out because they were stuck <laughs> they loved him but they couldn't uh, be, do anything improper so they stayed in the water and finally they understood what he wanted and they came out of the water they came out with their hair all around and they were very very shy but when they came to the shore in front of him krishna told them he, he gave them different instructions i want you to do this do this and they looked at each other very shyly but they followed him and at one point they'd said to him krishna because they want him as their husband we are your servants we, and krishna said if you're my servants come out and they said if we're your servants but give us back our clothes now this is how we are i'm your servant but could you just give me a few things i need a few things and if he says no just come out as you are and serve me we're like no i can't do that who's going to take care of me in my old age where am i going to get money in the future if i'm going to dedicate myself to your service who'll take care of me so they got to a point where from a very high level not like us who are mentally uh, indecisive they got to a very high level of devotion and they came out and they disregarded all the morality in their lives only to please him and nothing else and for that he praised them he praised them so highly and then he told them now you can get dressed and they got dressed and they were very very shy again uh, and they were all standing there and they were hoping that he said that only a husband can see his wife in this way so by this activity i have married you all and they were like and then he said and one year from now i will meet with you and i will share with you as a husband and wife and this was a secret they didn't care if they even had to marry somebody else as long as they knew that he had married them so krishna exchanged like this young girls went home and krishna is walking on the bank of the jamuna with his friends who joined him sometime later and he starts looking at the trees now there's a reason why he's praising the trees here and we find out from our acharyas that those who have studied these uh leelas over hundreds of years they explain the inner meaning of krishna that he was praising the trees because he was about to meet some very ungenerous people they were highly placed and extremely ungenerous so krishna is going to first point these lowly trees we look at trees as landscape background not a very important unless they give us some flowers for the deity we don't don't have much interest in the trees but krishna is going to focus on the trees and contrast them to an ungenerous heart so he says 
these greatly fortunate trees whose lives are completely dedicated to the benefit of others, even while tolerating the wind, the rain, the heat and the snow, they protect us from these elements. Just see how these trees are maintaining every living entity. If we think, um, I think there's a small list given in the next verse of the things that trees give us. One time I was in China and I asked the devotees, what do you get from trees? And they got very studious. And they gave a long list of things, even scientifically, that originate from a tree. Things that sustain us. The door comes from a tree, the cupboard comes from a tree, the seat comes from a tree, Prabhupada's seat comes from a tree. So many things around us. And then there's resin and how they use it and so many things. So Krishna said, just see how these trees are maintaining every living entity. Their birth is successful. Their behavior is just like that of great personalities. For anyone who asks anything from a tree never goes away disappointed. These trees fulfill one's desires with their leaves, flowers, fruits, their shade, their roots, their bark, their wood, and also their fragrance, their sap, the ashes, the pulp, and the shoots, all aspects of the tree. It is the duty of every living being to perform welfare activities for the benefit of others with his life, his wealth, his intelligence and his words. So here Krishna is speaking and he's also speaking to us because he's quoting this in, con in, in, in contrast to these ungenerous brahmanas, saintly people who are ungenerous. Not ordinary people who are ungenerous. We expect it from them. But listen to this. This is written a little different. This is the, the words from a book called Gopal Champu, where this same Leela is being spoken about. So let's hear it just a little differently. Sri Krishna joyfully said, These trees please me very much. They are all effulgent with great love. Now do remember, he's talking about the trees of Vrindavan, not the trees on the uh, nature strip here. Please place your glances upon these trees and praise them with many slokas. Praise them one by one. The cowherd boys laughed and they said, It is you who speak words that fill us with wonder. You are like the, a pair of earrings that adorn the cheeks of the circle of the most eloquent poets. You are the best poet. Therefore it is you who should describe the glories of these trees. So Krishna smiled at his friends and he said, Please listen. With their own bodies, these saintly and virtuous trees shield other living beings from the burning heat of the sunshine. 
These living entities' birth as trees has now borne its glorious fruit. Look at them. Because they live only to protect the lives of others, these trees are glorious. With fruits, flowers, shade, leaves, firewood and other offerings, these glorious trees serve all other living entities. Now here is the sentence that came back to my mind when I was thinking about this particular beggar. Krishna says, human beings who act for the benefit of others, act for the benefit of others, are called devotees. Others who act only for their own benefit, only pretend to be saintly and virtuous. Now isn't that a little bit confronting? <laughs> I think it's a little bit confronting. Because we don't always act for the benefit of others and especially there on that railway station, that was the last other that I was wanting to act for the benefit of. I didn't want to have anything to do with that filthy man. I didn't, it didn't, seeing him didn't evoke instant compassion in me that look at this poor living being who's living in such a hellish condition, I wish I had some way I could help him. That never came to my mind. Because I was feeling very sanctified and pure and transcendental, I was sort of just looking out of my bubble at him and he was just, you know, look, he must have done something horrible in a last life and uh, therefore he's living on a train station. Disgusting! And uh, Radhe, Radhe, I'm going on my way to my visit to Vrindavan very happy. And it was disconcerting that I was supposed to feel unhappy for him when I was feeling so happy for me. So I thought that I wanted to share this with you because this is really, really, really important. We as devotees have to know this, that we're not here. I was carrying in my baggage something that could heal this man's future. But I didn't think it was that important. Yes, I've got something in my bag. You know, people have things in their bag. I've got some auspicious things. But I wasn't thinking that I'm actually supposed to be distributing the good fortune that I have to others. Now one time when I was in Vrindavan, I was listening to, uh, it was on Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's Disappearance Day. And one devotee was reading some of his qualities and some of his writing. And one time he said this, and I never really got into this, I was like, okay. <laughs> he said, I wish that every selfless, tender-hearted person of the Gaudiya Mat will be prepared to shed 200 gallons of blood. 200 gallons of blood for the nourishment of the spiritual corpus, that means one person's spiritual existence, of every individual of this world. 
I'll read that again. If you hear it, it makes your mouth drop open. I wish that every selfless, tender-hearted person of Gaudiya Math will be prepared to shed one, two hundred gallons of blood for the nourishment of the spiritual corpus of every individual of this world. This is transcendental exalted consciousness. If we want to think, actually, where are we heading towards and where are we on the path? This is the direction that Srila Prabhupada was going. He said, millions of flattering speakers will go to hell. But someday, someone will realize the confidential truth spoken boldly and be saved. It may take hundreds of lifetimes or hundreds of yugas before someone can hear properly. But it is not possible to make a person understand the truth unless one is prepared to shed hundreds of gallons of vital blood. What he's saying here is, don't think it's easy to make devotees and don't become complacent because it's too difficult and you don't feel like doing it. It's so important. So then one time in August in 1973, Prabhupada was speaking to a Dr. Lukok, Professor Lukok, in his room. And he said to him, the professor said to him, Master, how many thousands of devotees of Krishna consciousness are there? 1973, Prabhupada said, and that is very difficult to say. So, suppose I am talking to you for the last more than one hour. He's talking to the professor. He says, you have not become my devotee. So we have to spend gallons of blood to make a devotee. Therefore, we cannot expect many numbers. And the professor said, oh, no, of course. And Prabhupada said, you have to talk like this for years. You have to talk like this for years, and then one becomes a devotee. If anyone's a preacher, they know this. You go and you give and you give and you give and people take as much as they can and then they go on with their lives and you wish that they had taken more, you wish that they had, it, they, you wish that the connection had been made more strongly over the hundreds of hundreds of, of uh, devotees who have come in this door over since Srila Prabhupada 1975. Hundreds of devotees have come in this door and left. And if you wonder, why do they leave? Well, partly it may be our lack of compassion, but Srila Prabhupada is telling us what it takes to change someone's heart towards Krishna consciousness. And that means also that those whose hearts have changed, who are within our community, they should be very, very much appreciated. Even the little ones who are popping up with Krishna from the very beginning of their lives, we should so much appreciate our own community. However, we have to turn outward, as Srila Prabhupada has done, and try to make others into devotees.
Prabhupada said, you can talk, you have to talk like this for years, and then one becomes a devotee. So we cannot expect a very large number. That is not possible. But if we can make one man a devotee, then we think our preaching attempt is successful. Yes, it doesn't matter. One. We don't want many. One moon is sufficient. This was Srila Prabhupada's fond uh, phrase. One moon is sufficient. And there is no need of millions of stars. What is the use if one does not understand? If one understands that is sufficient, he will make many others. So here we are. We are supposed to make many others. That is our policy. We cannot expect a large number. That is not possible. Still, we have got many thousands. But they are very strong. Those thousands are very strong. So Shudha Prabhupada was expert at this. First he comes in, oh, it's very difficult. We, we one or two, we're struggling so hard. And then he would turn around the other way and become triumphant and say, we have so many thousands of devotees and all of the people out there are actually also devotees, they just don't know it. So he would emphasize how difficult it was and then he would emphasize how easy it was. And I remember as a young person, I would sit there and my eyes would get crossed. You know, he just said that and then he just said that. That doesn't make sense. But he would always do that. And in your, if you read the Bhagavatam in his purports, you'll see this so many times. He'll criticize Arjuna, that he was weak-hearted, and he, didn't, you know, he, was, he was acting as a materialist, and he, he forgot his spiritual knowledge, and so many things. And the next purport he'll say that he was so soft-hearted, and so noble. And so when you go through, in a literal way, trying to understand Krishna consciousness, you'll find contradictions here, there, and everywhere. But there actually are no contradictions. It's like two sides. We have two hands. We have an up and down. We, we have always, there's two. So there's two sides to Srila Prabhupada's preaching. One is to push us and make us feel a bit guilty even, that we're not doing enough. And the next is to appreciate how wonderful it is what you're doing. How wonderful it is that you're here. And it was, it, I have to say, it was disconcerting. Some people think that it was so blissful. When Prabhupada was here, it must have been so blissful. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it was more multifaceted than that. I was thinking the other day, I remember sitting right here, behind this here, sitting right there. And Prabhupada was live sitting up there, and I could hardly look at him. <laughs> because he was looking around in such a stern way and saying, more or less this. Every one of you should be out there giving Krishna to the world. And I had a baby, and I'm like, I can't go out, I can't leave my baby, I feel so bad, I've got a baby. <laughs> you know, I'm not supposed to, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, you know. And, and Prabhupada would be so penetrating and so intense. And why was he so intense? Because he was de deliberately, deliberately sacrificing gallons of blood. So he was allowed to be intense like that. 
Later, in the same visit to London in 1973, there's another, there's another talk, he's talking on Bhagavad Gita, which means he's more or less speaking to the devotees. And he said something that one night I was just about to go to sleep and I was listening to him speaking. And when I heard it, it, it really shocked me. It's very soft, but this is Srila Prabhupada's words. He said, but they, now I don't know if he's speaking about us or he's speaking about them. <laughs> but they are so much embarrassed with this uncontrollable senses and they are going to the darkest region of material existence. Adanta means uncontrolled. They cannot control their senses. They have become so unfortunate, this simple thing, this little effort, this little austerity to control the senses, they cannot do. The yoga process means to control the senses. Yoga does not mean that you show some magic. The magic, the magician can also show magic. We have seen one magician. He created immediately so many coins. Tang, 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 said Prabhupada. And the next moment it was all finished. So the life, they're missing the aim of life. Why? They are unfortunate. So you can take it for granted. We are trying, even our Krishna consciousness mission, we are trying to awaken. Still they are so unfortunate, they cannot give up sense gratification. Now, if you find this, this lecture, um, it's, it's available. Uh, it, if you listen to Prabhupada's voice, that was what struck me, was his voice. He says, they are so unfortunate, and he goes, condemned unfortunate. Repeatedly we are spending our gallons of blood. Don't do this. Still they are doing. They cannot give up even sleeping. That's when I got nervous. I thought he's talking about us. <laughs> he's not talking about the condemned. People outside, we, we, he, he's so condemned, he says, so condemned, Kali Yuga. So it is very difficult with these rascals, they're outside. <laughs> very, very difficult. Therefore my Guru Maharaj, he, they were not preaching. My Guru Maharaj's Guru Maharaj, Gokisho Das Babaji, they were not preaching. They were disgusted. I have no power to reform these rascals. Better don't bother. Let them go to hell. At least, and then he said, but still, my Guru Maharaj preached. He was so kind. And he asked us also to do the same thing. But it is very, very difficult job. Now this is a rare moment where Srila Prabhupada is opening up to the challenges that he's actually uh, working against. Normally he's saying, this is <laughs> like this, but here he's, he opens up his own uh, experience. He says, it is a very, diff very, very difficult job. People are so rascal, so condemned, so sinful. 
And then he goes, it is very, and then he gets more intense, it is very, very difficult to raise them up. Very difficult. So I was listening to this and I thought, if I didn't hear his voice, I wouldn't be able to hear the urgency with which he's expressing, you could think, frustration, criticism, frustration to all us maybe and them out there maybe, whatever. But the next moment on the class, his voice is completely calm. It was as if it was just a little opening up where he expressed how hard it was to do what he was doing. But it wasn't for self-pity or because you know we should all feel guilty. He was stating the facts. We can't even give up sleeping. And then he's like, okay, let's keep going. <laughs> and he started speaking again in a gentle voice and giving the Bhagavad Gita. So that was also for me a very powerful gallons of blood moment to see what Srila Prabhupada was capable of. And so that goes into also what we're capable of because he will empower us, not necessarily, obviously not necessarily to do what he's doing. That would be uh, 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 foolish. That would be uh, perhaps even a little vanity would be there to think I, I'm going to do what Srila Prabhupada is doing. We have our own lives. We have our own uh, stages of life. We have our own circumstances. But still, we should understand that we need to push beyond the barrier of any kind of self-complacency. That I'm doing enough, it's okay. And actually try to understand what we hold in our luggage and how necessary it is for the rest of the world. Hare Krishna, Shriya. Have a good day. <laughs> Hare Krishna. So I'll stop here and see if anyone has any questions because this is a very powerful beggar story. Sorry? <laughs> that was in 1993. <laughs> I think you probably can get some around here too, you know. We don't want to be like the people who don't bathe in the Ganga in Kolkata because it's dirty and they go all the way to the Himalayas to bathe in the Ganga. <laughs> so the Prabhupada is right here. And he's very active also. Because this temple has always been very stable and steady and the, the devotees are very active. So the combination of Srila Prabhupada's presence and the devotees' uh, sincerity makes this one of the most uh, potent Prabhupada deities that I see anywhere in the world. If you look at his eyes, look at his eyes and then you can tell is he pleased with you or not. <laughs> And if you if you come towards him in a very humble way, you'll see in his eyes he's pleased with you. And if you come and you're all confused and don't want to do anything, then you'll see him looking at you with a different expression. <laughs> so you're very, very fortunate to be here in Melbourne. And Srila Prabhupada sits like a king and he actually sat there. That's the most extraordinary part. So also it's very, very healing to go up to Srila Prabhupada's rooms 
and, and just stay there until a thought arises that you can turn into a prayer. Um, sometimes, I, like I noticed, I think it was the day before yesterday, I was on a, a tight schedule and I was upstairs and doing something and I had to get home by a certain time. So I walked past the door and I thought, oh, I can't go down the stairs again without going in to see Srila Prabhupada. And so I, I opened the door. I th thought maybe the door's locked. <laughs> so I pushed and the door started to open. So I was like, okay. So I sat, at, I was at the very back, just inside the door. I paid my obeisances and then I stood there and I thought, what are you doing standing at the back of the room? And so I moved forward a little bit. And then looking at Srila Prabhupada, I thought, what are you doing standing so far away? <laughs> so I moved closer and closer and closer to him. And then I was thinking, what are you doing without something to say? You know, no, nothing to say. I've just come here. Here I am. Hi. <laughs> I'm in a hurry. Uh, well, you know, it's nice to be in Melbourne. I like Melbourne. Um, uh, uh, you know, I've got to go home now. You've got to say something. You have to become trained like that. Train yourself. I have to say something to him. This is his house. This is his Vyasasan. These are his beautiful Radhabhalava deities. Or the light, other way around, this is Radhabhala's beautiful Prabhupada. <laughs> so we must learn to say something from our own thinking. Because we're so passionate and so busy and so thinking about our work, our family, our this, our that, we have to slow down when we come into the temple and, and find our access point. Something that we can say. And if you can't say anything else, you pay your obeisances, and in your mind even, if you can just slow it down enough, offer him a flower. Because once here in Melbourne, Prabhupada said, you can't go to the temple without an offering. Now we were all young, and a lot of people were living outside at that time, and he wanted everyone living in the temple because it was necessary. So he said, uh, you come to the temple, you don't bring anything, he says, what do you bring? You say, ah, oh, I bring my face. <laughs> and he went like that. <laughs> so I bring my face. <laughs> so we should always be mindful that we have to bring something. And if we haven't got anything to bring, bring your attention. Slow down your mind enough, just for a moment at least, or sing something. Just quietly sing something. There's a whole range of things that we can do to strengthen and develop that relationship with Him. And by doing that, then what happens is we develop some of His quality. In the same way as if, you, if, you, if I sat on the ground with that beggar, you know, I got down on my knees and sat down there in the dirt on the, in the station in Mumbai, I would immediately develop some of his qualities. So in the opposite way, when we go before Srila Prabhupada with that uh, love and appreciation and this wish, I wish I could do something. I don't feel like I can do anything. I wish I could do something. Then he makes the arrangements and we find ourselves actually gifted with service. Anybody have anything to share? Ah, phone! <laughs>
Yes, Balaram. Hmm. Well, it wasn't a Pandal festival because there weren't massive amounts of people in 1993. So it was just held in the temple itself. So it was crowded, but it wasn't, it wasn't something extraordinary. It was a simple festival. Yeah. Anything else? Yes, Prabhu. Yes, yes, yes. So many times. How did he deal with it? Um, I can't say, obviously, how Prabhupada, Shri Prabhupada dealt with it. I can say things he said. So one of the things he would say, he would, it was almost like he had a, a sh he, there was a, a slide. He could be saying how unfortunate it was that all of us are not serious. And then he could go over the other side to balance it and say that we're also fortunate because we've come some degree of the journey of, in Krishna consciousness. And somebody who comes some degree, as we all have heard, that's permanent. And then he would speak about our permanent good fortune because he was dealing with uh, he came here to Australia to deal with Australians there were no Indians not a one so he's only dealing with people who are from this culture who can't follow the rules and regulations as he would advise so he would be saying like that so condemned he would give them simple instructions and none of us could follow them because they weren't simple for us, they were life-changing, <laughs> they were too hard. So when he saw somebody was coming along, he would give them so much appreciation if he had the opportunity and there weren't too many people. And I'm sure that he would feel disappointed, particularly with the leaders when they fell and stumbled. But he would very quickly also go to the other side and say, well, Krishna is taking care and they've made so much progress, They're this percent, one percent, two percent, that's theirs permanently, they're very fortunate. And then, uh, as I said, I wasn't close to him like that, and so I, I'm, I, I can't represent or guess, but it, it seemed as though then he would refocus on the mission. He was able to re-say, okay, let's, what's next, let's keep moving. And he oftentimes would move a little to something else. If something wasn't flourishing, he'd go and put some effort somewhere else. Not like that, but another aspect of the same project that might move forward. But he would be appreciating with the devotees how many people they've touched, how many people they've given prasadam to. We forget that that started their spiritual life already. And next life, if they don't continue in this life, next life, they have already something in their bank account. And, and there are many wonderful stories about people who saw the Harinam going by, you know, they were in, in a shop somewhere, they saw the Harinam, or they ate some prasadam. Uh, there's so many stories like that. 
and then they come forward a bit. And for myself, when I see the devotees come up and then you know recede, I try to think that ISKCON is much bigger than just Melbourne or Perth or even Australia. And that person, because some of them, they're wanderers. They wander in, they do very nicely, and then they wander off somewhere where there's no devotees. So I think that on the whole circuitry of life, though I should give them some key concepts to take with them. You're not your body. The gunas, simple Bhagavad Gita philosophical points. And even though they may forget them, they'll never get them out of their head again. They'll be there in the background, and somewhere along the way, they'll find somebody else who says, oh, you know, I'm into Hare Krishna. They'll go, oh, really? In Brazil, in America, somewhere else, and they'll, they'll take a next step. And that next step may not be yours to, to provide for them. But you did, their, you did this, somebody else does that. In the bigger picture, they're moving forward. Uh, there was another question. Yes, Hare Krishna. Um, you mentioned earlier this point when you spoke about the gopis as like going out of the river to Krishna, that we should go to Krishna as we are, and sometimes the devotees attempt to demand things in return. But then, um, like you mentioned that point that we should know that Krishna will take care of us. But I was wondering how to understand that sometimes we see some devotees, they give everything to Krishna, Who are disillusioned. Yes, 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 yes. It's not so simple. I mean, it is simple. The principle is sim simple. But when you see somebody in a very difficult situation, you wonder why, you know, shouldn't they, everyone be equally blessed? You know, everyone comes up and up and up. Why should somebody be feeling unfortunate or, or, or um, disconnected in some way or disappointed in some way? Oftentimes, when you see that, somebody has reached a point where there's a big challenge. Um, there's a big challenge to take your next step. You're really touching something that is really hard for you. Um, it may be something, I'll give you some ordinary examples, it may be your career. Uh, you, you, there's no way you're going to change your career and you can see that if I become a Hare Krishna, I'm going to have to change my career because I can't do this anymore. These are beginner's challenges, but they're also there for advanced devotees, but they're internal then, they're subtle. They've already done all the good things on the outside. But there's still attitudes, concepts, um, feelings that, that may be opposite of Krishna consciousness. That there's, now they're asked to do the cleaning up, or the cleansing of those, and they may not be even aware of them. We often see that with our older uh, companions on the path. They're not aware of that, they don't want to do that. They feel like I'm a devotee and I have to worry about that. But it comes to the point where that's your next step of advancement to deal with this. Because the reality is, and it's kind of disconcerting, is you to get out of the material world you have to be a hundred percent. You can't get ninety-five percent even. 
because they're two different things, the material world, the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, everyone is transcendentalized. So if I'm 95% transcendental, I can get, go forward, I can, we say, go back to Godhead, I can move forward. It's not like, you know, cut, you can't go anywhere unless you're perfect. But the transcendental world is transcendental. So I might have a purified sense of myself, that I'm a Melbourne Hare Krishna devotee. Uh, I'm from uh, Western Australia, but I'm a Melbourne. I, I create a, a spiritual identity. We have to do that. But then Krishna may be asking, do you want to go there? And we're, yes. And he says, then you can't be from Western Australia. <laughs> You've got to give that concept up. You've got to go more to the truth that I'm actually a soul. And I might not have even explored that yet. I'm happy being a Hare Krishna from Western Australia. That far I've gone and I'm doing well. But now, but you know, at the time of death you won't be a Western Australian Hare Krishna anymore and that scares me because that's as far as I've gone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does everyone understand that? So we have to go, as devotees we realize, oh we have to go further. I thought that I was okay and I was okay. And I am okay, but there's further still before I can step into the transcendental spiritual energy, not the material. So therefore sometimes you see somebody who's very sincere, a really sincere devotee, really suffering. Yes? And if you look very carefully, if you know them and you look very carefully and talk with them, you kind of see that, oh, they're at this threshold where Krishna's pushing them. Go a little further, and, and from our view, they're going so far ahead of us that they're, they're almost perfect. But Krishna is seeing, and he's saying from within, go a little further, you have to complete the course. So we can't understand it from our angle, but Krishna can see what's required to extract us from matter completely. We don't even want to be extracted from matter completely. <laughs> We'd like to be like pure and happy and peaceful and blissful and all those things that we want, but to actually be extracted, we haven't thought that far often. And that's when I see a devotee who's suffering, I know that Krishna loves that person so much He's only doing something that is, is beneficial for them. And perhaps they don't see it even. Perhaps I wouldn't see it if it was me. But I have to have that foreknowledge that Krishna has said, I love you, I'll take care of you. And at some point you might have to, you know, there's a junction, you'd like to go that way. He says, no, you should go that way. And, and, and it, you know, it's this challenge, but it, he's not, not there. He's very much there. And the more we see that, the more we pacify, even in difficulty. So, and that's the responsibility of Vaishnavas, is to encourage each other like that. To see you have little brothers and sisters, you have older people, you have... How can I give them more encouragement, more energy to move forward? Okay? <laughs> All right. I think there's no more questions. One last question, anyone? Okay, all right, thank you so much, Hare Krishna. <laughs>